This morning, I'm going to talk a lot about the hope that we have as followers of Jesus and why we believe what we believe. And what that means to our life as we kick off a brand new teaching series for the month of November called Make Room. Uh, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to power it on or turn to the one in the book rack to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. It's been a fun weekend uh, already. I mean, we had college football yesterday. That was fun. In fact, now I was just telling Brad back there in his Michigan sweatshirt that it looks like not only were they cheating on the signs, but apparently the Ohio State coach hired his brother-in-law to do it. It's like, this is getting interesting. Uh, That brings joy to my life. Apparently, it doesn't mean much to yours. But I'm sharing a little bit about that, about sports, because, man, I find that we venerate and love our heroes in the sporting world. We understand what heroes look like there. We just look at Indianapolis. We still act like Peyton Manning is the quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. <laughs> That's been a long time. And I want to encourage you this morning, while I love uh, football and sports as much as anybody, that for us, that what we're going to share, I believe the most heroic act the world has ever seen or experienced that's actually going to matter in a hundred years where if you look at like, nobody's like getting excited about the highlight champs from a couple centuries ago, are we? Right? Like we're not going to be excited about the same things a hundred years from now. I believe the hero we're going to talk about is worth worshiping and it's meaningful. And so Mark chapter 16, I'm going to read kind of a, a starting point for us. Theme verses this morning, right before it in Mark chapter 15. Verse 33 and 34, it says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This morning, we're going to look at what we usually study on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to talk about what we believe as Christians and why most Americans no longer make room for the things of God in their life or to know Jesus the way that we can. And I want to challenge us for those who are Christians to live counterculturally and those who are not. And again, we started this church for you to talk about really why we believe God is still on the move today and what we're actually seeing in our lifetime here in the state of Indiana. It's incredible. See, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Mark notes some little details we don't get in the other Gospels. And he's going to talk about as Jesus gives up his spirit there on the cross, verse 34. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're unfamiliar with the historical teachings of the Bible, you might read that and only think that Jesus is saying, the Father has abandoned me. And certainly that's going to be true in that moment as he's going to face separation for his father for the first time. Because of his crucifixion of this perfect sacrifice, fully God and fully human, he's going to be the atoning sacrifice for all of our sin and wrongdoing. But in that moment, just so that you would know why he's doing this, he says, which probably doesn't mean much to you, but he's quoting word for word Psalm 22, written hundreds of years earlier. And if you read that psalm, It was all about the Messiah, which Messiah is just, again, uh, Hebrew for anointed one. Christ is the Greek for anointed one. They mean the same thing. That he's saying, I'm the Messiah, the Christ that you've been waiting on. In his last breath, 
and the most heroic act in human history. I want to talk about the God that we serve and why we should live differently as followers of Jesus and why we should make room for him in our lives. Are you ready to study God's word together, church? Come on. It says this in Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, so this is now the crucifixion happened on Friday. The Sabbath was on Saturday. And on Sunday morning, the women are going to go to treat the body with spices. The Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Mary, you going to do it? Salome, you going to do it? I don't know how we're going to do this. And we're going to break all this down in a moment to talk about what they were probably going through. But verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We're going to break this down, but I want to use Mark 16, those first eight verses of the, as a platform to talk about, just like the early disciples, why it was difficult to trust God and to make room for Jesus in our life. I want you to answer the question, all of us together this morning, will you make room? Will you make room for knowing Jesus in your everyday life? Will you pray with me? Uh, God, I just pause here at this service, and I just want to acknowledge that as Christians, we believe that your Holy Spirit is here with us right now. God, I know the truth is, oh, this many people in a room, there's some that, that don't really believe that yet. And so I pray, Jesus, that each of us, you might speak to us. And I just got to be honest, I'm not adequate, God, as a communicator to bring this message that is so important. So I pray, Jesus, that whatever isn't of you won't be heard. But what is of you, God, and your word, it might pierce our minds, pierce our souls, and transform and change our way of living. We love you, Jesus. We acknowledge your presence and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's family said, amen. Amen. Have you ever had a day not go the way that you had planned? <laughs> I'm going to assume some of you have had some things unexpectedly occur in your day before. I know I have. I got up yesterday. I thought things were going to go very differently than the way that they went. It was kind of a rough day. Did you ever have one of those days? I can remember a day that went so unexpectedly that I still remember it all these years later. It was near Easter time, and I was getting ready, you know, for Easter Sunday, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to go to the Nordstrom Rack. Have you ever been to Nordstrom Rack? It's kind of like the average guy's, like, expensive place, right? So I'm like, I'm prepared. I'm going to get something nice for Easter. And I went into the Nordstrom Rack, and I heard all these teenage girls in this commotion at the front of the store. They're going, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. Not because I was walking into the store, but because... <laughs> At the front of the store, I look over, and there was, this is dated back a little bit. Uh, do we have any Bachelor fans in the room? No, because this is a place of Christians. Okay, one honest person. One honest person. A bunch of you are liars. But at the front of the store was the Bachelor, Bachelor Ben. It was from Indiana. Yeah, okay. It was Rain and Ben there. And we walked in, 
And they all, and then I was so ashamed, embarrassed, but I was like, my wife is not going to believe this, you know, because secretly she watched it. And I, I went up, and I'm like, I'm very ashamed, but can I get a photo with you? And, and I got the photo, and I'm like, why do people get so excited? And then I walked to the back of the store, and I'm not making this up, in the back of the store was Chuck Lofton from Channel 13, who does the weather. And I was all sudden, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's in the store. And I couldn't even talk to him. <laughs> and, you know, I never thought when I was walking into Nordstrom Rag, that was going to be my shopping experience, right? Like, things can just change on a dime. You talk to anybody that lived in Carmel like 30 years ago and talk about change. This place looks so different. Things change and unexpected things occur all the time. And the reality is sometimes unexpected things that we don't like happen. If you live long enough, you will have prayers that you pray that God answers, but doesn't answer them the way that you want it. You will have times where you see people who are just not honoring to God in any way, and yet he lavishes his grace and mercy on them, and you wonder why. The Bible compares human beings to God as an ant to a human being. We cannot fathom or understand his ways. And so it's very difficult sometimes when we're trying to. And I got to imagine Mary and Mary, that first Easter Sunday morning at the resurrection, were pretty confused. It had been a devastating weekend. Things had been not going their way. Their friend, the one that had said he was the Messiah, had lost, you know, been crucified and was gone. And, and they, had, they were devastated. In fact, some of them lived in fear. And in this passage that we just read, you know, I think many of us miss some of the facts of the resurrection. And so if there's anybody here that you're kind of new to Christianity or new to really studying the Bible or really getting in depth on it, I want to give you just a few facts about the resurrection. Here's four facts of the resurrection. William Craig, an apologist, has this first one. He says that Christians and non-Christians knew the tomb was empty. So nobody denied that, that Jesus' body was gone. The Romans didn't. The Jewish authorities didn't. And the disciples of Jesus didn't. They all were on the same page. He's missing. The second fact of the resurrection, that disciples all died brutal deaths. All of them. And the question becomes then, why would they die for a cause they knew was false? If they had stolen the body, and they knew that this was all a sham, why would they have all died brutal deaths? And you might say, well, you know, there's people who have followed cult leaders that have lost their lives. Yeah, but they would have had to knowingly have gone and got the body and then lied about it. And some of them lived sacrificially for that cause for decades. If Jesus lived 33 years and we're somewhere around 30 AD at this time, 90 AD, almost you know, 60 years later, John is writing the Gospel of John. Why would he live for 60 years as a Christian if he had been a part of that sham? The third fact of the resurrection, eight ancient sources, both inside and outside the New Testament, confirmed disciples encountered Jesus after his death and resurrection. After it all, including 500 of them at one time. They could all have been like, no, nah, I didn't see that. But all of those people claimed the same thing, and it's accounted for not just within the Bible, but in other ancient sources. A fourth fact of the resurrection, there could have not, this couldn't just be some hallucination that they all shared in because groups don't have hallucinations. And if it was just a vision, then the body would still be there. The, the reality is that there's a lot of factual evidence for the resurrection. So the question becomes then, 
why don't most human beings make room for God in their life then? Why don't most human beings even believe the good news of Jesus' crucifixion, covering our sin and wrongdoing, his resurrection, overcoming death, so that we could live in heaven eternally, experience the spirit of God in our life? The temple curtain was torn in two when he gave up his spirit on the cross, so his spirit is no longer in a building in a box. It's now in the body of those who know Jesus. But most human beings don't make room like that. And so I just want to acknowledge that and talk about why people don't make room for Jesus. Can we do that? Sometimes we think we got to like, you know, put a film over our eyes and not talk about the reasons. Here's some reasons why people don't make room for Jesus. Number one, we're tired of dead religion. Uh, Another way we might say this is we've been disappointed before, hurt by leaders or even churches or people who claim things in the name of Jesus. Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being is broken and has sin. And it's only those who repent of that and admit their fallen nature and humility that get to receive the gift of Christ in their life. And so it's not about who's a better person. It's about who's willing to surrender. But think about Mary, Mary, and Salome that first Easter Sunday when the resurrection occurred. They were pretty disappointed. Some might even say disgusted by what has occurred. Uh, Look with me again in the first four verses. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Sloan bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. This was common Jewish practice to preserve the body. We know that Nicodemus, when they first buried him, donated a lot of stuff, and they got this tomb prepared. But now uh, they couldn't go the next morning because he was crucified at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. Then you have the burial, right? They couldn't go the next morning because it was a Sabbath and that was unlawful. So they waited till first thing Sunday morning to go and treat the body. Look what it says in the following verses. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance? Verse four, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They're not going there with anticipation and excitement. They're going there with a sick feeling in their stomach. Their friend that they have been following, that they saw perform miracles, had been whipped with the cat of nine tails 39 times. That's nine uh, straps of leather with shards of bone and other sharp materials. It would be whipped 39 times because it's thought that 40 would kill you. They, they had taken a crown of thorns and pressed it into his scalp. They had taken him and made him carry a cross, a tree trunk essentially, a mile up a hill to a place called Golgotha, which means the skull, where he would die between two criminals of asphyxiation in front of everyone. It was the most humiliating way to be tortured and to die. When they're going to the tomb, they're expecting to see that. And some of you, when you think about God and about what he's doing in the world and why you don't make room for him, the reality is you have some disappointment, some sick feeling and cringe moments in your stomach because of things that have happened to you in your life and your past experiences. Can we just acknowledge that? There's nothing wrong with being honest. But what Mary and Mary and Salome are going to see is going to be anything but that. And they're going to be shocked by it. Now think about it from God's perspective for just a moment. Specifically, let's talk about the person of Jesus. You know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus in this, this instant, if I, if I was in his shoes, I would have been very frustrated on Resurrection Sunday. 
I'd have been like, dude, do you remember when we were all sitting there at dinner and like I told you I was going to raise on the third day? Like that was just a few days ago. I'd have been on, uh, you know, that Sunday morning, like just waiting for that grand presentation to everybody. Like you ever been to a peewee football game when they put up like the, the banner that they hold and then the whole team runs through it, right? I'd be like, we're going to open up that angel's going to roll the rock away. I'm going to bust through. And nobody's there. How disappointing. Like from God's perspective, he's doing everything that he said he would do. And yet he doesn't respond with anger, animosity, and disappointment. He's still going to pursue them. Yet for us on our end, when we don't understand the ways of an eternal supernatural being that it compares an ant to a human being, like a human being to God, we become very frustrated by those disappointments. Many people uh, once had a belief in God or attended a church, now see faith in Jesus as a, as a dead religion for them. And I encourage you this morning that if that's you, it's okay to acknowledge it. But I want to counter that, man, I believe when you open yourself out, open yourself up to, to talking to him, specifically through Jesus, that you get to see things and, 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 and hear from God in ways that you never thought possible. I've made lots of poor decisions in my life and I've never regretted once when I made room for the works of Jesus in my life. But the reality is, some of us, because of dead religion and disappointment, we struggle with the concept. The second reason that some struggle, maybe, to make room for Jesus in our life is we're afraid. Now, I, most of you probably go, nah, I'm not afraid. It's not fear. But, well, let me explain what I mean by that. Hear me out on this. Look what happens. These are the women who loved Jesus late. They were best friends with him. They're the ones that go to the, to the tomb that morning because they care about him that much. And look what happens for them, verses five to eight. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. He's sitting on the rock. Essentially, the, the angel rolled the stone away, right? And skip down to verse seven. It says, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Like we would think these great disciples of Jesus would go there, see the body's gone, remember what he said, and go, oh, this is awesome. And then the angel himself like literally tells him, like, go tell everybody. Go tell Peter, the disciples, prepare. The good news has occurred. The gospel has happened. Hey, man, I can't wait. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to spread the good That's not what they do at all. <laughs> Look what they do in verse 8. Here's what, here's what they do. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, this has nothing to do with gender. It's the natural reaction that most human beings in our fallen nature respond when God shows up. It's fear. Every time God presents himself in the Old Testament, the first response is fear. Because we, don't, we can't make sense of God. We can't explain God. And, and fear often keeps us from making room for more of Christ in our lives. Let me give you some examples. Uh, some, of, some of us in the room, you didn't grow up around Christianity, or you might not consider yourself a Christian today. And you, if, if you really started making room for, for God in your life, if you became a, a follower of Jesus, you would uh, have severe judgment by people that you care about. Friends, family, maybe even 
push or cast you out of those relationships. Some of you, if you began to follow Jesus and make him the center of your life, your friends that you hang out with would think things. Your intellectual friends would think things. Your coworkers would think things. Your drinking buddies would think things. The people that you do life with who aren't followers of Jesus would start judging you. If, if, if we really allowed God, let's take it a step further then. If we allowed God to, to actually change us and we were to make room for him really in our lives, then it would mean we'd have to start living differently. Oh, this is where like rubber meets road, right? Like I'd have my, my sexual life would have to start honoring him. My finances whew, would have to like, you know, it's all God's now. I'm a steward of his resources. I don't think so. I'm not doing that. I'm going to stay in control of everything I got, right? There are reasons that we don't choose to make room for him and follow him. I'm not saying that to you. I'm going to admit and confess to you. There are times where I don't want to change. I don't want to make room for God in my life. And the early uh, followers of Jesus, Jesus were no different. Fear keeps many people from making room for Jesus in their lives. In fact, I want to give you a bit of a, a challenge and encouragement this morning. The challenge is this. Uh, if some of you are like, man, I, I want to follow Jesus. I like the idea of going to heaven. I, I like like having God in my life. I like the whole you know, cognitive way of viewing that. But to really change, I don't know if I want to change. I want to challenge you that the reality is that's a part of it. The, the word uh, Jesus, they use in the New Testament to talk about the transformation that occurs when you know Jesus is metanoia. Metanoia means a complete and utter change. Not because you will it, but because when you know God, he starts changing things in your life. I, I can remember when I first became a Christian, I was in the fraternity house and I stopped drinking with some guys and they were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I like the old, the old Josh. Could you bring him back? And I was like, no, God's doing something in my life and I want to begin to live for him. The word metanoia, it's a complete and utter change. We sometimes think, well, I'd like a little bit of God in my life because I could be a little better person. But, you know, kind of like a caterpillar that goes in the cocoon, gets a little bit of Jesus in their life, and they come out a beautiful butterfly on the other side. But that's not what the word metanoia means. Metanoia is a complete metaphysical change. It's like going in as a caterpillar into the cocoon and you come out a roaring lion. Everything's different. And you can notice that person has been with God, not because they're perfect or because they're a better person, but because they've known the God of the universe and he's changed them. And we're afraid of that kind of change. You know that our church from day one, we've done lots of things that I do over, but I will never regret this. We wanted to be a place of extreme faith, live boldly, love deeply, right? Like we wanted to believe that God was still going to move. And when there was 40 people, we said, we want to reach a million people for Christ. Crazy idea, right? But if the God of the universe that we serve that does supernatural things is possible, we have to start allowing him to, to do some of what he wants to do. And so we've prayed over the years in this, this little church that met in a home and then in five homes and then met portably in Clay Middle School. And then we met in this little building off of College Avenue that was smaller than most of your houses. And we had five services, people sitting on the floor. It was crazy. And then a three-year-old church bought this building. And then 
We, we renovated it over 10 months and the church grew and we baptized a whole bunch of new believers and we raised up spiritual leaders and then we decided we were going to send them out to plant churches. We started, started Multiply Indiana and started planting churches all over the state. And then what happened next? We said, hey, we're not getting enough people to go, so we're going to start Mercy Road churches. And, and, and we did that and we sent uh, 500 people out in four different directions during COVID, which was terrible church growth math. You know, like... You need to get people into church and then you're sending them all away. And, and two years into COVID, we sent out 500 people and we had reached six to 700 new people. And we baptized more people in those two years than we ever had in the history of our church. And this year it's happening again. We keep having more and more people following Jesus and being baptized. And, and we were at a place this last August where we literally at 10, 15, 11, 30, there were multiple Sundays that we ran out of every single chair in the room. People were standing up against the wall. And so we've been asking God, what, what's next? If we're not going to live by fear, but we're going to seek your purposes, what does that look like? And so I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward now. Uh, we're going to hand out this brochure and we're going to talk about our next step as a church. And inside is an envelope. And I want to tell you, if you're not a Christian or you're new here to this church, don't even look at the envelope. This isn't for you. But you can read about what we're doing. That'd be kind of fun. But at the end of the year here, we're hoping to take a big next step for our church. Long term, we see eventually building out the building and having a preschool and daycare and uh, expanding our kids' space and all kinds of stuff. But that's a big project. And we thought, man, we're not ready for that after just planting all these churches. But we do want to acknowledge that we need to make more space. And so we started thinking, well, what that would that look like if we want to reach as many people for Christ as we can? And we came up with a way through just our end of year giving campaign that we, we do something different every year that people can give to. And, and this is what, where God kind of led us. And I want to walk through it. If you turn to page three there, it walks through the items that we hope to accomplish. And I'm, I'm pumped and excited about it. And it's happening quickly. Because of your generosity at the end of last year, we were able to make the down payment on some seating. We are able to add 150 minimum more chairs in this exact same space without removing any walls, uh, simply through uh, fixed theater seating. And we've done the math on it. In fact, I got a little chart that shows you the seating layout. Uh, th those chairs, because some of you, we've had questions about people, well, with this new seating that's fixed, uh, is it going to be smaller chairs to fit that many in there? No, mainly not. If you look at the bright green, uh, the, the neon green there, those are all the same size chairs, 21 inches that you're currently sitting in. Plenty of lush padded space for you. You will survive. The, the larger, or I mean, the, the other darker green chairs, those are one inch uh, short, smaller, one inch in width smaller for those who truly want to sacrifice on Sundays. Then the other color chairs, the pink and the purple chairs are one to two inches larger for those that you're just like, I need a little bit more comfort in my life. And then some asked, uh, well, God makes all different sizes of people. It's one of the beautiful things about God's creation. We don't all fit in the same thing. Are we going to have arms on the sides of these chairs to limit? No, we are not. There's no arms that's going to be on the sides of the chairs. Then some of you, including one of our board members who's six foot seven, was like, what about us with uh, longer legs than others? Are we going to be cramped? Nope. Uh, the same distance of every theater, 36 inches, will be the same distance. The reason we're able to fit more chairs is the simple math of the chair folds up so we can have the rows uh, uh, close enough together that we can fit more people in very comfortably. 
And we're even looking at, in addition to the rows where there's no seats in front for those with longer legs, can we add a couple of inches to some of those back rows? I haven't confirmed that yet, so don't get too excited. Either way, you're going to survive an hour and five minute worship service. American Christians. But that's the vision for the chairs. The other parts are some things. Because we planted all these churches, we didn't do what we should have done five years ago. Our our HVAC system, the the units on the, the roof are actually... Uh, well over five years older than they were supposed to be, uh, way past their date. And so we're going to replace those. Uh, and then there's some other minor things happening, including adding furniture to our kids' space to make more room. And then uh, one of the things our worship team's really excited about in our dock back here that's just storage currently, we're actually going to put in a new sound studio. And while the band could be out here playing, we could actually have Matt, uh, who is our worship uh, pastor, is in the back there. Give it up for Matt. He, uh, for 20 years, has, has uh, been a sound uh, recording artist, and he's um, going to be running the studio there. It'll be sound protected. We just happen to have the foremost expert in acoustic architectural design who attends our church, Gavin Haverstack, volunteering to do that. He didn't ask me to mention his name, but it's incredible how all this is kind of coming together. And so we'll be doing uh, songwriting back there and the actual recording will happen there, but the band would be out here technologically. You say, well, why do that? Over the last few years, we've had such an influx of young, talented people. It's incredible. We want to be worship producers and artists. In fact, uh, in the last year, Elevation Worship, which doesn't take that many interns a year, I think it's maybe somewhere around 10 or something, of their 10 or so interns, three of them came from our church. And... uh, yeah, a few of you clap, but don't, don't clap for that. Don't clap for that. <laughs> we love all churches, and while different types of churches, uh, different vision than ours, but I, I, I want to celebrate that, that amazing worship production that occurs there. They found that much uh, ability here, and we're, I'm in a boat that, like, let's stop having them poach all these amazing people. There's nothing special about Charlotte. And uh, start saying, God, let's uh, have some original worship music written here. So that's all that's happening. And I spent too long on that because I'm too excited about it. But that's the vision of what would happen. And all of it has really to do that we want to make room for more of God in our lives, which means making room for more people, 150 minimum per service that we could reach. And we believe that Hamilton County and Carmel, Indiana and North Indianapolis, as much as it changed over the last 30 plus years, it's going to continue to change. And we're saying God is going to be a part of this generation, not separated from it. In the book of Judges, in chapter 2, one generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he has done. And by the end of it, you get the most heinous acts in all of the Bible. And we're not going to allow that to happen here in the space. We want to maximize the number of people that we can reach for Christ. We're not going to be afraid and live in fear. We're going to believe that the power and authority of the Spirit of God is piercing hearts and souls today. In the last uh, six and a half years, through Multiply Indiana and Mercy Road, we have planted 30 churches now. There are thousands, way more people worshiping around the state than there are right here. God is on the move, and we're not done. And we're not increasing our seating capacity to be the next megachurch in town. That's not our vision. Our, we're increasing the seating capacity simply so that we can increase our sending capacity. Because we want to raise up disciples of Jesus and set them out to plant more churches. Pastor Jeremy Leffler and our staff in the next year or so will be planning that next step to plant another Mercy Road church. We believe in a big vision for what God could accomplish in fact, I'll close out this time by saying of that 500000 that we needed to raise, we did some dinners uh, for some of our volunteers and leaders. While they all couldn't be there, I'm excited to share 
We have commitments for 300, over $318,000 already committed, which means we only have 182,000 left to go. And so again, if you're a follower of Jesus, and this is your church home, if it's not, don't even pay attention. But if you are, we, we would love for everybody to participate in this, even if you're just gonna commit to praying and fasting, write prayer and fasting on the card and put it in the envelope, and then we'll just put them in the giving stations out in the lobby. They have a little slot there. Just drop them in there. Uh, and, but for others, if you're like, how could this even be accomplished? On the back of the brochure is how 68 uh, households alone could raise uh, that amount of money. We have $182,000 to go. Thank you so much for your generosity. Okay, but final thing, we're not gonna live in fear. We're gonna say, God uses, pray, what Lord would you have me do to accomplish this vision? And why would a Christian do that? Why would we live sacrificially in our areas with time, talents, and treasures? What Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Don't live in fear about life. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The only thing we're meant to fear is God himself. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The problem is, why many people don't make room for Jesus in their life, we don't seek his kingdom first. Number three, if you're taking notes. We actually don't seek his kingdom first, even though that's like the one thing he told us to do. The primary thing in our life was to put his kingdom first. I'll give you just a few examples. I promised the guys I'd do this in 60 seconds. Let me give you three examples in the Bible of what we're meant to seek first. Number one, by giving him the first of our day, Psalm 55, 17, morning, evening, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. Number two, we're meant to give him the first of our finances, Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of your crops. Uh, number three, we're meant to trust him first. Not your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I did it in 60 seconds, Matt. That was awesome. But I share that to say because that's not what most people do. We lean on our own understanding. We even tell people to do this. It's American culture, right? Like pick up, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Believe in yourself. Go make it happen. Look, I believe in confidence. I, I believe that uh, initiation of working hard is a good biblical thing to practice. Please don't hear that. But what I want to tell you, the thing that you're supposed to be most confident in is, to, is that when you have God in your life, anything is possible. And rather than just picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, to pray and to trust that God is going to show me the best path forward. But most of us don't live that way. If we talk about what we seek first, it's not his kingdom. Sociologists will tell you human beings usually seek money, sex, power, popularity. Those are the things that we seek first. So he, he flips it on his head and he counterculturally tells us, look, if you want to seek my kingdom first, it's going to transform and change your life. There's going to be metanoia that occurs and people are going to start noticing a change. That's why Christians are meant to live differently. The fourth and final reason many people don't make room for for God, for Christ in their life, is that we don't realize Jesus is making room for us. Do you know that, if you're, even if you're not a Christian here, that the Bible teaches that right now, until Jesus returns, he's making room for you if you decide that you want to be a part of that. Jesus said this in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't live in fear. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the, the way to the place where I'm going. It was Jewish custom that when a, a, newly, a new marriage occurs, that the father of the bride would, would build a, a room onto the home so that the family could live there. Does that sound exciting for to live with your in-laws, everyone? But that was Jewish custom. And, and what John 14 is saying is Jesus saying, your, your, your heavenly father is building on a, a room to the home. He's making space for you in heaven. And he says, one day I'm going to come back and, <coughs> excuse me, heaven and earth will come together. That was exciting. And, and we'll be like the Garden of Eden again, like it was meant to be. Only now those who have chosen to be there will be there. We'll be a perfect paradise with God forever. And he's preparing a place for you, but you have to respond. And Thomas is like, you know, he's always doubting. Verse five, that's not up there. He's like, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. Why don't you tell us? And he's like, verse six, Jesus tells him, yeah, you do. I am the way. This might be the most controversial thing Jesus says. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That the, at least the version of the Bible, what the Bible teaches, if you want to follow the historical teachings of Christianity, it's very clear. There's no subtlety about this. Being a good person isn't enough. Being a spiritual person isn't enough. Believing in a creative God isn't enough. But believing in other religious beliefs and kind of putting it all together isn't enough. The only way to the Father, to heaven eternally, he says, is through Jesus. Because he was fully God and fully human, the perfect atoning sacrifice so that you could be made right with a perfect God. And get this, because some of you are like, well, I would love to experience God. I would love to receive that gift of salvation. I love all of that. But the reality is like the stuff in my life, I know I've rejected him for so long. I've allowed other belief systems to creep into my mind and, and knowledge. I've gotten to a place where that just couldn't be me. And I want to tell you, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he desires to prevent you from truly making room for Christ in your life. It was Jesus that wanted us to know that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not through your willpower, not by being a better person, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, if you're here today and you were an atheist or you used to practice another faith and you have rejected God your entire life, he simply says... There is no condemnation for those who receive the free gift of Jesus Christ in their life. If you're here today and you're like, yeah, but what about my addictions, the jail time that I did, the lack of integrity I have, the drugs and alcohol, the pornography, the things I got in my life that I know I could never be in the presence of God. He says, if you truly do this beautiful thing and confess and repent, that he willingly loves you and gives you this free gift of grace and forgiveness, but it requires the humility just to admit it. That's all you got to do, just to admit it. And if you do, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Finally, as we close out our time, I love in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, he records a, another part of Jesus giving up his spirit on the cross that Mark didn't write down. And it says this, in verses 28 and 29, he's going to fulfill Old Testament scripture by drinking this wine and vinegar. And then look at verse uh, 30 with me. He's on the cross in his last breath. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Greek, that word actually, it's tetelestai. Tetelestai means it is finished, or it's actually an accounting term, which means it's paid in full. The choices of your past, the disappointment, the wrong that's occurred, if you receive his forgiveness and grace, it is finished it's paid in full. It no longer exists. The final thing is this. Do you remember at the very beginning when Mark noted that that happened at what time again on Friday? What time did he give up his spirit? Three o'clock in the afternoon, twilight. Why that time? You see, the high priest on the Passover, which was the day that Jesus was crucified, once a year on the Passover, he would come out the last and greatest day of the festival and he would sacrifice the Passover lamb. What did John the Baptist call Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God. See, that, that lamb that year would take on the sins of the Jewish community for one year. And the high priest would come out there and on the altar, he would sacrifice the lamb. And then at the very end, he would do it right at three o'clock in the afternoon every single year. And then he would say in a loud voice, Tetelestai. It's paid in full. Your sins are forgiven for this year. And this lamb, this high priest, got up onto the altar and with his very last words on the cross, says, Tetelestai, it's finished. It's paid in full. The sin that you did, that you're not going to tell a soul in this room, and God knows and he saw it when you walked in here. He doesn't look at you with anger and animosity. If you come to him and you confess and repent, he says it's paid in full. It's as far as the east is from the west, but it requires the honesty and the humility to make room for him in your life. And I want to give you, all of us, that opportunity. We pray with me, Jesus, each of us in here, we have so many things. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we're all broken. And we're, we're afraid to confess that and admit it. We have all these reasons we don't make room for you and we just want to come to you and we want to do this beautiful act. We want to repent of that. We want to confess that to you. Maybe you got something specific you need to confess to God this morning. He loves you. He pursues you and pursues you and pursues you. For those in the room right now that you're not even a Christian, God loves you. He's going to keep pursuing you. He's going to pursue you until your very last breath. Because he wanted you to know he came for you. And so if you're in the room and you'd like to surrender your life, whether for the first time or to recommit your life and really make room for him fully, I invite you to pray this silently as I pray out loud to begin that journey. God, I confess that I need you. I repent of anything in my life that's not about you. I choose to seek your kingdom first. Not money, not sex, not popularity or power. And I surrender everything in my life to you as Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness. We make room for you in this church. We make room for you in our lives. And we desire more of you in this world.
We worship you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.